Hello and welcome to The Long Short. Inflation is back, making headline news with the announcement this week that UK inflation accelerated unexpectedly in February. The annual rate of CPI inflation in the UK rising to 10.4% last month, higher than the 9.9% rate forecast by economists. The past 12 months have seen us all feeling the pain at the tills and the petrol pumps, as well as forking out for higher energy prices and to say nothing of the real value of our wages being hit. And higher inflation is not just a concern in the UK, of course. The Eurozone annual rate of inflation stood at 8.5% last month, prompting the ECB to raise rates across the Eurozone by another 50 basis points, while US inflation reached a peak of 9% last June. And seemingly under control now with the news that inflation is slowed to a 6% annual rate last month, although we are by no means out of the woods there with the breaking news that the US Fed has increased its benchmark rate by a further quarter of a percentage point. So... The million dollar question here is, how much longer is this period going to last? And are we just going to have to get used to higher prices and overall higher inflation and interest rates? And what options are available to savers looking to best navigate through this period? To answer all these questions and more, we are delighted to be reunited in the Long Short Studio by Henry Neville, who is a portfolio manager at Man Group. Henry, welcome back. So it's been quite the year since we last spoke with you. What is your read of the economic situation globally? And how is that impacting inflation levels? Thanks very much uh, both for having me back. Uh, enjoyed it last time. I'm sure I will do uh, this time uh, as well. So at the start of this year, our outlook piece, our global strategy outlook piece was entitled, It's All Going to Be OK. And when I look back at it from this juncture, I think, well, partly that was wrong in terms of we've had the largest bank collapse since 2008. Uh, We've had the largest drop in the two-year yield since the late 1980s. But at the same time, uh, developed market stocks are up 3%. Developed market bonds are also up 3%. And I do feel there has been a noticeable calm down from the market conditions that we experienced last year, the events uh, in the banking sector recently notwithstanding. And when we wrote that piece at the start of this year, our view was, although there were significant problems in the global economy and in global markets, 2023 was actually going to be a year where inflation rolled over uh, and where the Fed was able to pause uh, and therefore for it to be a pretty good environment for, for risk assets. And those problems that I refer to were to be stored up for 2024 uh, and beyond. And broadly, that's still where we are today. So when we wrote that piece, we expected US inflation to trough at 2%. Uh, Various things have meant that we now expect that trough to be a little bit higher, around 3%. We expect that to happen uh, towards the middle of this year, probably just after the middle of July. That puts us in the disinflation quadrant of our fire and ice framework, which I discussed uh, last time. I won't go through in detail again now, but that tends to be a good environment for risk assets. Now, it is true that the other legs of our process, growth, valuation and sentiment, do not look so propitious. Growth metrics almost universally look uh, unattractive, most notably in very inverted yield curves. Valuation depends on geography and sector, of course, but certainly in the US still looks expensive and sentiment is kind of pointing in in neither direction uh, as we measure it. But we have a situation today where 
we've had uh, a financial crisis of sorts in SVB and then Credit Suisse. And monetary policymakers in general have uh, acute muscle memory of systemic financial risks. Uh, and we think this very likely slows them down on their um, hawkish bent. And we've already seen that in the Fed, 50 basis points was odds on priced in a couple of weeks ago. They ended up doing 25 basis points yesterday and the language skewing dovish, that language about ongoing increases uh, taken out. And therefore, we think the next few months uh, could be pretty risk positive uh, for equities, albeit over the longer term, as I've already referred to, uh, we're much less sanguine. And Henry, I know you're more US focused, but I, I can't help but bring up this rather striking figure that came out as part of the UK Chancellor Jeremy Hunt's budget announcement last week, uh, which was uh, the view by the UK Office of Budget Responsibility, which forecasts that headline inflation levels in the UK could get down as low as below 3% before the end of the year, which which stuck out to me and, and many others at the time. And that seemed like a bold prediction then, and even more so now, given, as Tom mentioned in the introduction, that UK inflation for February has ticked back up into double digits, which I think wrong-footed a few people. Can I just get your immediate reaction to that figure and, and whether you think that can be applied to a broader trend across developed markets? Hmm. So we're definitely surprised uh, by how sticky inflation has been uh, so far this year. At the start of the year, our models were suggesting by this point, headline inflation in the US will be 5%. We're at 6%. But the direction of travel, as I've mentioned, uh, is still the same. And a point I always re-emphasize, because I feel it seems very obvious, but it's not well enough understood in in my mind, is the heavy lifting that the base effect is going to do for all countries. So if we take the US as an example, even if we get 0.4% 0.4% month-on-month readings persistently every month from here. And by the way, 0.4% a month is the 66th percentile reading going back over 100 years. So that is a punchy number. We will still get to 3.2% year-on-year by the June reading. So um, when uh, Prime Minister Rishi Sunak says he's going to halve UK inflation, um, well, even if he sat on his hands and did nothing, he would very likely halve UK inflation. Added to which, there is now evidence that a bunch of the underlying indicators we look at to give us a read on inflationary pressures are starting to roll over. So yes, I do still have confidence that we are going to get fairly pronounced rollovers in the year-on-year inflation numbers over the next few months. Henry, so what factors then can you point to which suggest then that the higher inflation levels that we're witnessing now are starting to get under control? So really, um, to understand inflation, you need to understand nine things, which I'll um, briefly list. Energy, for obvious reasons. Hard commodities, both because it's key input into a number of manufacturing processes and also because it's input into housing. Cars, semiconductors, freight rental costs, food, cotton, and wages. And if I just briefly run you through some of the things uh, we look at to try and get some gauge of these. In terms of energy costs, if you look at uh, a bunch of 
energy futures contracts weighted according to average US consumption. That basket is down about 20% on a year on year basis. And if you follow the futures curve through the next 12 months, it suggests that on a year on year basis, it will stay negative for the next 12 months. The American Automobile Association's price at the pump series has been rolling over since the middle of last year and is in negative space on a year on year basis. Hard commodities uh, are deeply negative, about minus 20% year on year. Again, the futures curve suggesting we're going to stay negative for much of the next 12 months. The Mannheim used cars index, the, the recent numbers have moved up a bit, but on a year on year basis, we're still about negative 10%. Semiconductor prices, hard to get an exact read on, but if you look at the estimated 12 month forward sales for listed semiconductor firms, uh, those are significantly down, down, getting on for 10% uh, on a year on year basis, the movement in that, in that metric. Um, shipping costs, various metrics you can use, but Baltic Dry down significantly year on year, down about 50%. Housing costs still positive, of course, but rolling over sharply. The Zillow rental index, which we watch, was plus 15, plus 16% uh, in Q2 of last year, is now getting on towards plus 5%. Food is still expensive and is still rising quite fast, rising about, rising close to 20% actually in the US, but the futures curve for various agricultural commodities contracts suggesting we move negative over the next 12 months. And we've seen recent good headlines uh, around that, the um, uh, elongation of the uh, Black Sea grain deal, for instance, uh, over in Ukraine. Cotton, key for clothing, deeply negative on a year on year basis, futures curve suggesting we stay there for the next 12 months. Wages, of course, that the final piece is the one which has been uh, higher than people expect and probably the thing which has been keeping uh, inflation somewhat stickier. But even there, you see some pretty good signs. Uh, the jolts quits rate, which we think is very important in the US, was 3% in the middle of last year. It's now down to 2.6%. And within the labor market, you're seeing services sector wages rolling ahead of manufacturing wages, which is key for inflation because services sectors uh, are more labor intensive than good sectors. And then in particular, we watched the Atlanta Fed series on wages for people who stay in their jobs versus wages for people who leave their jobs. Um, people who leave their jobs tend to get paid more. Uh, I'm hesitant to say that because I've been at Man Group for seven years, so it suggests I, I'm a bit of a mug, but uh, that is a uh, fact of life. But in recent uh, months, well, since COVID really, the gap between people who change jobs and people who stay in their jobs has widened dramatically. Uh, and that has been a sign, we believe, of increased labour bargaining power. That spread is now starting to narrow. Uh, and we think that is a, a good indicator that whilst wage growth is going to stay materially positive, more positive, and we may come on to this later, more positive uh, than we experienced in the last decade, we do think it's going to moderate such that inflation readings uh, over the next few months will come down, as I suggest. So an interesting feature of the particular period that we're going through is that 
as, and as you mentioned, several factors are ticking down, but we don't seem to have seen that filter through to prices. They seem to have gone up very quickly, but maybe not have come down in line with some of the year-on-year -year declines that you've just outlined there. Obviously, a bit of an impossible question, but can you just speak to why that is and when we may see prices finally return to previous levels? Yeah, so in terms of uh, the reasons for it, I think it's partly that the, the wages piece has been stickier than, than we imagined. I think it's also a case that in the initial uh, aftermath of COVID and the, in the initial inflationary shock, companies were unwilling to pass price rises on to consumers, partly because it's just a bit of a bad look. There's a war going on and you're seen to be price gouging partly because psychologically the consumer hadn't been warmed up to the idea of inflation. Now the consumer has very much been warmed up to the idea. Uh, we think it's likely that there's an increasing uh, willingness and ability of corporates to pass those price rises on as they seek to preserve margins. So that's possibly uh, what we're seeing. Um, just more widely, what I would say, and this is, uh, I suppose, bad news for you and for me and for consumers everywhere, uh, is what can be bad news for the consumer is not necessarily bad news for the investor. And what I mean by that is uh, I don't think we are ever going back to the prices we saw pre-COVID. We are never going back to uh, the fuel bills that we saw pre-COVID, to the mortgage costs we saw uh, pre-COVID. Um, now, when you say to someone, okay, your fuel bills are going to go up 10% this year, and then next year, they're going to only go up 2%. For most people, that's scant consolation. For economists, for central bankers, that's a victory. It's also a victory for markets, because historically, where inflation is decelerating, even if it's not making up for the sharp rises that it's experienced, that is a good time for risk. But for consumers, uh, we should get used to the fact that a lot of these key line items in our monthly outgoings are going to be permanently higher. Oh, joyful. So when we're in the shops then and we have uh, prices that are 0.50, 50 cents or 50p, most likely to go to the whole number and the round number. Um, that is joyful. Uh, so. Uh, Henry, the Fed, um, you mentioned it, um, rose its benchmark interest rate by a quarter percentage point yesterday, and that's its ninth consecutive rate rise, if, if I've got that correct, the highest since 2007. And to put this in perspective, one year ago, rates were at historic lows, and they were near to zero, right? So are, are we then seeing the beginning of the end of the Fed's monetary tightening? Have the Fed gone far enough? Um, yes and no are the answers to those questions. Yes, I think uh, we've seen the beginning of the end. Uh, I think it's not crazy to me that the hike we saw yesterday will be the last, certainly, of this phase uh, of the cycle. As I said earlier, that, that there is just this uh, acute fear, understandably, because of 2008 of systemic financial crises. Uh, I believe that, along with what I see to be softer than expected inflation readings over the next few months, as I've 
detailed is going to be enough to manifestly slow them down and perhaps uh, uh, even stop them. Uh, is that enough to stop inflation over the longer term? Well, no, I don't think it is. And this is the uh, analogy, uh, well, the, 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 the echo, I should say, that we have of the 1970s. Uh, it tends to be that central bankers do a bit when faced with inflation, but rarely do enough. And therefore, though inflation will slow down over the next few months, I believe, further such waves are likely through the next decade uh, because rates at 5% are not enough uh, to kill that. Just before we move on from central banks, we mentioned that the the, the Fed has, has made its move already at time of recording on Thursday, the 23rd of March. The Bank of England is about to imminently put out whether it is also going to raise interest rates. How much can we assume that the move by the Fed will influence the Bank of England and how much can we expect that these uh, sort of the, you know, maybe bring in um, the European Central Bank in that as well? Are, are we expecting them to all be in lockstep on this or can we assume that this, we are near the end across the board? Well, I'm not expecting them to be uh, in lockstep because the inflation patterns uh, across Western economies, while they've been similar in terms of the shape of the curve, it's happened at, rough, at different times. Uh, so the UK and Europe have been somewhat behind the US, but broadly, I would expect the same pattern Um Inflation pressures here in the UK uh, are worse than in the US, but with the exception of energy consumption, uh, have similar drivers. Um, if the if the Bank of England start cutting before the Fed, the obvious outlet for that will be in currency markets. Um, for the UK in particular, we think that sterling is so cheap now on pretty much any purchasing power parity or rate parity model that the impact of that would be somewhat blunted. But broadly speaking, yes, we're expecting the same pattern, but no, not necessarily in lockstep. AMA's Next Generation Manager Forum, now in its 10th year, returns to London on Tuesday the 16th of May. The forum provides a platform for the exchange of ideas and the development of peer networking for senior individuals at alternative asset management businesses managing up to $500 million in hedge and private credit assets. Throughout the afternoon, speakers will discuss next generation managers 10 years on, the war for talent, how to acquire and keep it, ESG implementation and non-negotiables, and investor relations, retention and maintenance. Register today to learn more from the Stellar Speaker lineup and engage and network with colleagues both old and new. We look forward to welcoming you. Henry, you alluded to it, um, your, your paper. I really enjoyed reading your paper, The Lessons from the 1970s. Um, and, and it compared the higher inflation period that we're experiencing now with the inflation environment of the 1970s. Uh, could, could you um, take our listeners through the comparisons that you are seeing from then and now? Sure. So there are some similarities of causation. So in the 1970s, the United States was coming out of and indeed was uh, fighting the Vietnam War. 
uh, and at the same time was faced with a large energy supply shock coming out of multiple crises in the Middle East. And um, today, the United States has been fighting a, a medical war against COVID coming out of that, uh, and is also faced with energy supply shocks coming out of uh, war in Eastern Europe. So there are similarities in causation. We actually prefer to focus on the monetary policy angle. Uh, and that is, as I've already alluded to, that inflation tends to come in waves. And when faced with those waves, monetary policymakers tend to do a bit, but not enough. So through the 70s, we see three inflationary waves from October 1967 to January 1970, from June 1970 to December 1975, and from November 1976 to March 1980. Um, so if we take the second of those waves as an example, because uh, that was the tenure of Chairman Burns, who today is um, the go-to for someone who wants to give an example of terrible monetary policymaking. But as I suggested in, in that paper that you referenced, in a sense, it's a little bit unfair because Chairman Burns, through that inflationary wave, kept real rates positive for almost the entire period and by an average of plus 1%. And in the inflationary wave that we've recently seen, which we date from February 2021 to June 2022, this Federal Reserve has kept rates negative throughout at an average of minus 6%. So the similarity to the 1970s, we think it's very likely, even though, as we say, we think inflation will moderate over the next few months, that this is not the last wave of inflation uh, in this decade. Now, in terms of what rate they would have to go to, and this is why I said uh, in answer to your question earlier, no, I don't think they've done enough, what rate they would have to go through to, to kill the beast. It's unfashionable now, but we actually still like the Taylor rule as giving a good heuristic as the, the rate that would permanently get them back to their 2% target. Now, for the US today, that's 9.5%. For the UK, it's 12.8%. Now, I don't need to tell you they are not getting anywhere close to that. That's why we are quite strong believers in multiple inflationary waves throughout the course of this decade. I should say for listeners at this point that this is an article that appeared in the AMA journal, which is uh, free to download as of Monday, I believe. Uh, if you just visit AMA.org or, or I imagine look at the show notes this episode, you'll be able to see that excellent article there. And I, I also really enjoyed reading it, if only for the rather worrying and, and colourful metaphor you bring up, which is that you, uh, as you just said, suggest that central banks need to take decisive action to kill inflation. And if they don't, you likened it to the Terminator, uh, given that inflation will come back in a in a stronger and more terrifying form. Can you just elaborate on on why this was an appropriate analogy? <laughs> yes, yeah, so I I think it's it, it's human nature when faced with an unappealing choice to procrastinate. And today, uh, the Fed is faced, and monetary policymakers globally are faced with the unappealing choice of inflation, multiple ways of inflation, or unemployment. And the reality is, they're not going to unanimously and deliberately pick one of those. They're going to do something in the middle. 
they're going to raise rates a bit, but not quite enough. And that's why we think, you know, like the terminators you suggest, it keeps coming back. Inflation will keep coming back uh, over the next 10 years. And just to give you, I just did some back of the envelope maths uh, the other day for a different piece I'm writing, just to give you some sense of uh, how unrealistic and indeed unreasonable it would be for the Fed to raise rates to the sort of levels we think would kill uh, inflation outright. I mentioned that the Taylor rule for the UK is 12.8%. Um, today, the average UK household earns £3,507 per month after tax. The average house price in the UK today is a little over £285,000. The prevailing five-year fixed rate mortgage is 4.4%. So um, I won't ask you to do the maths, but I did it on a spreadsheet. And assuming a 75% LTV, this equates to £988 of mortgage payments per month. And that's 28% of post-tax income, which by the by is an all-time high, comfortably an all-time high in data back to 1900. Now, if we look over the long term, the spread between uh, prevailing mortgage rates and the base rate is about 120 basis points. So if the Bank of England hit the Taylor rule once 12.8%, that would mean prevailing mortgage rates at 14%. That means the average UK household is paying £2,374 a month or 68% of their post-tax income just on mortgage payments. So they are not doing that in a hurry. And that's why we think, as I've said, we are going to have more such inflationary waves to come. That's fascinating, Henry. And of course, that's just paying for the mortgage alone. You've got to put stuff into the house and you've got to feed yourself. So that number would be even higher still. And particularly with food inflation, see the headlines today, food inflation was 18%. Um, so bringing this then back to inflation, or bringing this back to investing rather, um, how should institutional investors be managing their capital at this time? Well, I will repeat uh, what I said last time. Um, I can't give um, my compliance department have me on a tight leash. So I'm not going to uh, give any advice to anyone on, uh, on how they should invest their money. But what I can say is what has happened historically based on different environments. And the first thing to say is if we have more inflationary episodes, through the next decade, we want to know um, which assets perform best in periods of high and rising inflation. Historically, uh, we wrote our whole paper, The Best Strategies for Inflationary Times, uh, on this where you can get chapter adverse on what does well, but I'll give you a, a, a potted uh, summary here. Things that do well, I'm just gonna give you the, a few examples. Commodities, and in particular energy commodities, copper and gold, being short duration, being long energy stocks versus the market, being long miners versus the market, particularly gold and coal, albeit some people will have some ESG concerns uh, with the latter, um, being short consumer discretionary stocks versus the market, in factor terms, being long high quality versus low quality being long cross-sectional equity momentum and being long large caps uh, versus small caps. So that is the kind of basic shape of 
the portfolio you might want if you believed in more such inflationary episodes as we as I do. But I come back to the point that periods of higher inflation tend to be periods of higher volatility of inflation and periods of waves of inflation. The example of the 1970s was such that those periods where inflation was rolling over, you actually wanted a very different type of portfolio. So we think it's not enough just to work out what your inflation hedge portfolio is and stick all your eggs in those in that basket. We think a more dynamic uh, approach is required. And that tees me up beautifully for my next question, actually, which is just to say that with volatility up and generally a more frothy market, does that present an opportunity for active managers at this time? And what would you say are the investments that are most immune to higher inflation? You you mentioned a few there, but where can people look to best place their assets to protect wealth? Yeah, so I mean, obviously, I work for a um, not just an active manager, but a, a manager at the uh, more active end of the active uh, spectrum. So, um, you know, that disclaimer uh, ahead of what I'm about to say. But yes, I definitely think there are periods of time in history where beta works, and there are periods of time in history where you need to be more dynamic. And actually, if you look at the 1970s, it provides quite a good playbook for that. So um, if we go from 1967 to 1982, which is the, you know, that's what I would call the, the broader period of inflationary turmoil at that time. Over that full time period, a US 60-40 portfolio in real terms would have returned to you minus 3% non-annualized. So you might think, well, great, just be short 60-40. But actually, the volatility of returns through that time were immense. So between November 1968 to May 1970, 6040 was down 24%. Again, in real terms, all the numbers I'm going to quote you now will be in real terms. But then in May 1970 to January 1973, it was up 39%. From January 1973 to December 1974, it was down 37%. From December 1974 to December 1976, it was up 33%. From December 1976 to September 81, it was down 24%. And then finally, from September 81 to December 82, it was up 33%. So that volatility, uh, that kind of changes in episode through a broader regime, demonstrated the importance of a dynamic approach to portfolio management. And we think the next 10 years... Uh, could be it could be of similar uh, importance. Uh, Henry, of course, the name the name of our podcast series is is the long short. So then I would, would be remiss of me if I didn't ask about alternative investments. Presumably, these would be appealing to investors as well that would be looking to navigate through this market environment. I think it hugely depends on uh, which alternatives um, you're talking about. Um, I mean, alternative, as the name suggests, is a, is a somewhat diverse space. I think specific to inflation, we find that in historic inflationary episodes, trend, commodities, and as I've already said, certain long-short strategies and commercial real estate tend to do well. But private equity, private 
credit and residential real estate tend to do badly. So it's a misconception that uh, residential real estate is a is a good inflation hedge because it's so exposed to the consumer. So I think it's about um, you know not having a blanket approach and thinking carefully about which alternatives one has in in one's portfolio and what one is expecting uh, them to do. Well, Henry, this has been absolutely fascinating as we knew it would be. And thank you for being the Sarah Connor to our Terminator and warning us and protecting us from the the nightmare that is persistent inflation. Uh, But unfortunately, that is all we have time for. So thank you so much for joining us on the long short and, and helping us understand this sticky problem. The Long Short was brought to you by AMA, the Alternative Investment Management Association, the global representative for the alternative investment industry. As always, you can get the latest episodes by subscribing to The Long Short on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Amazon Music, or by streaming episodes directly from our website, AMA.org. Thanks for listening.